know, I can speak quite pragmatic at the fact that alcohol for me was a, a medication tool and a, a mood stabilizer slash enabler. So like my cognitive reaction was good day, bad day drink. So when you, every day is good or bad, you end up drinking. So I had to break that cycle and change my response. Ever imagine you could be mentored and guided by some of the most influential leaders in business? That's where 40 Minute Mentor comes in. I'm passionate about making business mentorship accessible to everyone. So whether you're just beginning your career or you're looking for advice in taking the leap and starting a new venture, or perhaps you're scaling a rocket ship, this show is designed to cover everything from the ground up in the next 40 minutes. Today's 40 Minute Mental episode marks the last of series six, and what a series it's been. I've had the great pleasure of interviewing some incredible guests, including pioneering entrepreneurs who have created new verticals like Sharmadine Reed, or disrupted industries like Ben Stevenson from Impala, or Tom Foster Carter at Lollipop. We've covered important topics like getting more women into STEM with Dr. Anne-Marie Imaphidon of STEMETS how to succeed at solo working with Rebecca Seal, navigating squiggly careers with Helen Tupper, the power of community with Daisy Onobogu, and holistic health with Reva Misra of Walking on Earth. We featured an operator turned investor in Cleo Sham, and even heard about the path to Olympic gold with Helen and Kate Richardson Walsh. And last but not least, we've had the podcast's first double unicorn founder, Ham Serenjoji of Chippecash, who have also been our sponsors for this series. They are all very hard acts to follow, but we are finishing the series on a high today with co-founder and former COO of Social Chain and the founding partner of Fearless Adventures, Dominic McGregor. Thanks to the incredible journey that Social Chain has been on and the vast media coverage they've received, many of you will probably be familiar with Dominic's incredible career to date and the huge success that Social Chain turned into. And this is made even more remarkable considering he achieved all of this during his 20s. In today's episode, Dom and I dig deep into his journey with social chain. And we explore how him and Stephen Bartlett grew the agency to over 750 employees across 24 offices, all within just six years. And we also discuss the challenges they had to overcome along the way and how they took social chain to IPO. Dom also shares some really candid advice for any COOs or aspiring COOs out there and opens up about his own challenging years dealing with alcohol dependency. And he shares how becoming sober has changed his life. I love talking to Dom. He's so humble and inspiring, and I can't wait to see where he takes fearless adventures over the years ahead. So whether you're a founder, looking for investment from a firm like Fearless Adventures, an aspiring COO, or you're just in need of some inspirational mentorship, I know you'll learn so much from Dom's brilliant advice in this episode. So for one last time this series, please sit back, relax, and enjoy these next 40 minutes with the brilliant Dominic McGregor. Dom, welcome to the 40 Minute Mentor. It's a real pleasure to have you on today. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm really good, thank you. How are you? How was your weekend? It was great, thank you. It's it's post half term, so uh, I've had an extended weekend and tried to desperately keep my five year and a half year old happy and entertained, which involved Halloween dressing up and uh, lots and lots of treats. So uh, it's been good fun. Thank you. <laughs> That's the same. My girlfriend who's 29. So 
Oh, awesome. <laughs> Good to <laughs> love it, love it. Um, well, we always like to start the 40 Minute Mentor with some quick fire questions. So if you can finish these sentences, that would be awesome. First up, when I was younger, I always wanted to be a footballer. Oh, yeah, me too. Me too. Who do you support, Dom? Liverpool. Ah, oh, I'm a Villa fan. So uh, yeah, you're, you're, you're a much happier bloke than I am this morning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, my first job was? Working in a coffee shop. Ah, oh, a classic. So a barista. Do you still meet, make a mean coffee? I don't drink coffee, actually. So um, anymore. Um, but yeah, no, I, I do. I know the difference between your lattes, your contrados, and your cappuccinos. So nice, nice, good stuff. Um, I'm most energized at work when I'm happy. Yeah, when I'm happy, when you're happy, loving what you're doing, it's, it's the most energizing part of it. Love it, love it. I couldn't agree more. And finally, can you share something that we wouldn't learn from your CV, whether that's a perceived failure or a setback in your career that you've learned a lot from? Good question. Uh, yeah, I've probably failed, probably failed business at university. Well, that's a very good one. That's a very good one. It certainly hasn't held you back. <laughs> well, thank you, Dom. Um, you've had incredible success as Social Chain, where you're a co-founder and COO. I know you took the business to, to over 750 employees across 24 offices, 200 million turnover. It's kind of the stuff of dreams. And I know you achieved all this while you're in your 20s, which not many people can say. So firstly, if we take it back to the beginning, what, what inspired you and your co-founder, Stephen Bartlett, to set up a social media agency? And can you share some insights into how you kind of scaled so fast and were able to win the sorts of big clients that you did despite your young age and lack of experience? Well, social chain was a bit of an accident. So we, we grew from running social media pages ourselves. So we were just kids who were enjoying running social media accounts. That basically, that's what it was. And uh, we were in a situation where social media kind of evolved a little bit. You know, we had Bieber, we had MySpace, Friend Reunited, and all these kind of platforms which had come and gone, really. And we had this bit of a, a period of time when face, the, the Facebook or Facebook, whatever you want to call it, and Twitter, and we're just starting to become popular, I guess, for kind of our age group, our demographic. And I loved Twitter, so I was running Student Problems, which was our first account on Twitter. And what we kind of realized, and um, this is kind of where we made the, the the jump was we could press one button and send 300 people to a website, which was like, wow, okay, this is this is interesting. This is interesting for us. This is interesting for other people. And because we were so focused on the student space and the young people, I guess, 18 to 24, that was an historically hard demographic to reach. So we were told and we were speaking to them every single day. So we then decided that, okay, we could be those people to reach young people. So we started going out and speaking to brands about, do you want to reach students? Do you want to reach young people? We can help you do that. And the, the, the difference came from, you know, us being young people, talking to young people, was like, ah, brands then got it. So when you said about winning big brands, now it's common. You know, if you want to start on TikTok, who do you use? TikTokers. You know, you've got 18-year-olds speaking to 18-year-olds. Back then, we were 18-year-olds speaking to 18-year-olds. So for us, actually... Convincing brands to work with us wasn't the difficult part because they understood as young people, we could make it relevant. What was difficult was convincing them that social media was here to stay and that this is something they should invest in. They didn't necessarily ever look at us as, oh my God, you guys are too young to work with. It was a case of, do we know if Twitter is going to be around or Facebook's going to be around? Like, where do you think it's their strategy? Interesting. And, and like, 
now that seems like such an obvious thing. But back then, as you said, you're, you're really changing, you know, trying to win over some probably some pretty big hitting corporations that, you know, probably been quite skeptical. So how did you do that? What was at the heart of the winning those hearts and minds? I mean, it's difficult because, you know, we are young people telling people what young people want. Um, social media you know, was growing, was getting more popular. When we spoke to some big companies at first, including FTSE listed companies, they didn't have an Instagram page. And that business now has multi-million followers on Instagram. So, but it wasn't part, they didn't know how to do their strategy, you know, 10 years ago, if a bordering, even if someone was 40 years old, they'd have never heard of social media a lot of times. So a lot of things helped us in, in this kind of space, you know, Google became more prominent, YouTube acquisition happened, people started to take note of what was going on in Silicon Valley a little bit more, you had the social network movie, you had people looking at their kids glued to their phones. So there's so many macro factors which help us do what we were doing that played a role in it. And then I guess our kind of piece was just convincing them that this actually is real. So bringing in some insights and data, speaking to young people and being like, okay, this is real. This is here to stay. This is embedded rather than it being a case of, no, this is going to disappear in a couple of years. Yeah, amazing, amazing. And I know from being a founder myself, you know, launching a business is, is super stressful and intense. What were some of the biggest challenges that you had to overcome in those early years? And how did you, how did you do that? I think the biggest challenge is understanding the wild west of business and like how things work. You know, even like what were we? Like we had, I had no idea what an agency was, you know, really no idea. That there's a whole marketing agency world. So that kind of identity piece was one something we did really, really quickly. It was like, how do we position ourselves and who are we sell into? Who are who are our like so because like big companies, they need to put us somewhere. Like, what are you? Are you like an agency or like what? So like, oh yeah, we're an agency. That was kind of like what we had to do. So that piece of like positioning and selling the market was really important, it was a bit hit big hurdle for us to overcome. After that, it was then the scaling pains, you know, cash flow, people, recruitment, all those kind of things which happen in every single business. So we were not immune to that. No one is immune to those issues. So yeah, it was it was the kind of standards that you expect. But I think the big piece for us was being, you know, 19 years old and answering the question like, so what are you? We had no idea. We, what are we? Yeah, that's amazing. Okay, we're an agency. That's kind of then we ran, then we ran with that. Awesome. And I think in some ways, the fact you hadn't come from that world probably stood you in good stead because you hadn't learned, you know, bad habits and you were able to come at it completely fresh. And clearly you kind of, you created a, a whole new type of agency. And I know you, uh, Social Zone was revered for having a very strong culture. What was what was at the heart of that culture? Because that clearly, you know, given what we do as headhunters, you know, the best talent typically wants to work for the fastest growing companies with the you know, most inspiring leaders, but also ones that have a culture that really, you know, is something to be inspired by. So what, what was the culture? You said it then. You said it. We came from, we came up from a world of having no bad habits. So like we literally, we had no idea what an office should look like. We, we had no idea what anything should look like. So you ask um, two 19-year-olds what you should put in an office. They build it in their own vision. So having that n zero premeditated sense, never working in an office before, never knowing like every single office, every other office in the country has white desks. We just assume that, you know, what we do is we, we do this, we build it this way, we'll buy desks from John Lewis, we'll buy, put a slide, we'll put a bar in, we'll put a kitchen where everyone gets food. You know, all these things which we then discovered people can't put ovens into offices because of regulations. But we're like, well, how do we get around that? We want another in the office. Yeah, brilliant. People and just don't think of those things. People, you know, people who have been there and done it before, 
and have built it more in like a traditional sense, you know, a limited thinking about what 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 they've been told is possible. We had no idea what was not possible and what was possible, and we just tried to create something new. So across the office, everything is everything is, you know, the the, the ideation of a of nineteen year olds who are just thinking differently. So that obviously then flows into everything you do in the business. It goes into like how you hire people, how you position yourself, how you speak, how you treat people. So like the culture is born in those moments, you know, when you say, well, we'll write our own rules. You know, we'll determine how people are treated. We'll determine how holiday policies are done. We'll determine how all these kind of stuff, which as you scale, people expect to be in place. And you just say, well, we'll just do it differently. We'll do it the way we want to do it. And it's that kind of completely like disregard for the status quo which helps build unique cultures, firstly. You know, unique is also negative. So how do you make it positive? Well, you just give a shit, you care about people. You'd be like, okay, well, this, this, this policy is stupid. You know, what happens if this happens to someone? Let's, let's change it. So like one of the examples, one of the girls was, was ill for six months, you know? Policy would have to say, oh, if they're ill for six months, then you pay them half salary, you, you know, all that kind of stuff. But no, you should pay them, pay them full salary. Like, that's how you should treat people. So... That, that kind of was something we figured out over time, but it kind of came from the ground. Ground was just caring, caring about people, caring about the company, caring about everyone in the building. Yeah, I think that empathetic leadership and caring is just, it's something that in the pandemic particularly we've seen like those leaders that really do care and that, you know, have got their team's best interest. What's and the not alternative? Just, yeah, like, uh, well, you what just need not to caring, not caring. And I just don't understand how that works. How can you not care about people who are, in, who are on your team you know, I come from a sporting background, like, we're all in the same team, like, regardless of what's going on, like, these people are all trying to, you're all trying to work towards the same thing. It's, it's archaic, it's, it's literally archaic to think of a world where you, you don't care about people you work with. I couldn't agree more, I couldn't agree more. And, and I think it's, it's, it's interesting that you clearly were able to hire incredible people, uh, you know, secure big brands like TikTok and Amazon, Coca-Cola. And a lot of that, I guess, is, is down to yourself and your co-founder, Stephen Bartlett, and, and the people you hired and the culture you created. How important was it to have a co-founder? Because it's, it's a recurring theme on this podcast. I mean, I'm a solo founder, and there's been uh, some sort of dark days where I've been speaking to the wall, and I can really see why having, and some of the best businesses we've seen have co-founded. So tell us a bit about your relationship and how did that evolve as the business grew? Because you were effectively growing up you know, together, you know, in your professional life. So tell us a bit about that relationship. I don't know how people do it do by themselves. It's one of those things where I'm like, oh, God, that journey's not nice to be alone. <laughs> it's like, Oof. so regardless of whatever scale you are, it's one of the things I'm like, bloody hell, that's, you know, I get you have a, like a, people can have a really strong core team around them, but unless like people really can share the burden, it's tough. And that's what it was. It's sharing, it's sharing the load, sharing the burden, the burden. So, with uh, social chain, you know, Steve and I, we, yeah, we grew up together. We figured out probably the, the vital parts of your life together, you know, 20, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26. You know, they're defining years. Every single year is bigger. So, like, you figure out so much about yourself and life during that time that, you know, we were living out of suitcases together, living together. Like, you, you grow up together. You become men, effectively, through that period. So, yeah, I mean, we, we did great things together. We did phenomenal things together and couldn't have done it without him. You know, I couldn't have done it without him because it takes so much out of you to do it. So having someone there with you the whole way is, is the best place to do it. Yeah, I, I, and I can totally see, and you clearly play to your strengths. I'd love to know how you 
in the early days you decided who was going to do what? Was it as simple as you're really good at this and he's really good at that? Or how, how did that evolve? And how did you manage tension? Because in those early years, you, I know you're great friends, but you know that, that's stressful times. So how did you diffuse that for any co-founders listening that are at this early stage of that journey and butting heads a bit? This is one of the things I always discover is like, what, 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 is, what is tension, okay? If you know what you're trying to get to, if you know the end product, what you want to get to, and that's your North Star, your end goal, you have to then work backwards from that and be like, what is the best thing for that? Non-emotional, non-like, well, I think this is better. I think not like logic-based discussions around what you should be doing. You know, we never put with heads, never got in fights, never shut, raised any, we, neither of us never raised our voice each other. We'd sit in a room and figure things out, but we'd always know what we're, but we're all, the, the alignment, the end goal was always there. And that was what helped, I think. It's like, we know what we're working to, we're a team, we're getting towards this point. Like, however we get there, we'll get there together. Firstly, we'll share the journey together. And secondly, that'll be what's best. So that's like, regardless of what anything's aside, that's where we need to get to. Yeah, it's so refreshing to hear that. And I know that you were social change COO. We do COO exec search for scale up. So as you can probably imagine, there's going to be a lot of people listening to this, uh, candidates listening that, that are aspiring COOs. What did your role as COO involve sort of day to day? And we'd love to know what your take on like uh, what a really good COO does. God, yeah. So... The founder CEO, CEO hat, you know, firstly, you play the founder hat. You know, you are the founder of the day, so you've got that responsibility in the, the position in the company, the brand, the marketing, you know, the, the founder kind of piece. So you have to wear that hat. Then you have to also wear the, the kind of traditional CEO hat of piecing everything together. You know, the, the business grows at such a rate where, you know, I always kind of saw myself as the cornerstone of someone who knew what everything, I was understanding everything that's going on in the business. So having that from people joining the business from a recruitment standpoint, to people being happy in the business, to the work we're doing, to the clients, to you know the funding side of things. So having that kind of entire 360 look of the business was kind of the role I played. And a lot of time uses a knowledge bank to, to understand why things are happening, where they were, what we can do to be better. And just having kind of birds, the bird's eye look of the detail of the business. That's what I, I kind of always hold my role as, is being like the custodian of social chain values and everything we do from work to culture to people to investors and translating that into the day-to-day -day operations you know being very visible being a face in the office in the uk and clients it's relentless you know the the, the remit of it is very hard to write down in a job spec I, I, it's one role i can't i can't i can't define really because you've got to be responsible for everything you know and then uh, you know, with the, C, the ceo role, obviously the brackets are kind of much more concise in terms of the strategy and the position in the marketing the ceo role and then yeah, that's it's it's a role I've always kind of struggled to define um, and that job spec for us. I don't know how you guys write a job spec for it. Well, that's it, it really resonates with me because we, we've, you know, COO roles are totally different depending on the company and the stage and the growth. But it, you know, typically you do find those sorts of generalists that are able to take a strategy of a CEO and founder and execute it and own people and, and, and lead cross-functional teams. But it is, it is hard to define. Because you play the founder role as well, you know, the founder role you've got to play. So... I have no experience bringing, I have no experience with a CEO of a role that's not linked to founder. So I can see in some situations a CEO has brought on, brought on as counterweights yeah. to balance, like maybe, you know, in an individual founder perspective, founders who are strong strategy but weak, weak execution, ex executionally, bringing people in. Yeah, and that, and that's often what we we're brought in to do, or it's placed the first COO into a scaling business. Now that's that's really interesting. 
I just wanted to give a special shout out and thanks to our sponsors for this series, Chipper Cash. The team have been on an incredible journey, having launched their borderless way to send money across Africa and beyond in eight countries so far, and are widely considered to be Africa's most valuable startup. So go check them out at chippercash.com or tune in to our 40-minute mental episode with their co-founder and CEO, Ham Serenjoji. And just for those listening that are kind of hearing this going, that's what I want to be. Have you got any points as to why you'd encourage them to go down the CIO route? Because I think it, it clearly opens a lot of doors. I mean, look, the piece of being the founder is, is, is a special piece, you know, being able to be that person when you've created something and you've helped it grow. That is the kind of, you know, the thing I love. The CEO role in terms of people looking at where they should go, it's a great step. It's also a great stepping stone to that next, cha- that next challenge. But, you know, A, being a CEO, because it's the natural progression, but, you know, also doing something yourself because you wear so many hats. It's the role in a company where you kind of get to see everything that goes on and have that control. And again, I think every COO is different to every CEO because they, they, they are seen as a partnership in, in a lot of instances. So it depends on the CEO. I would say to people, you know, you've got to understand the CEO you're working with to understand what your remit's going to be. So, and CFO to an extent as well. So that's kind of the feedback I'd always say is that it's a great role to take on a lot of the, the burden. Thank you, Don. That's great advice. And I know there'll be lots of people listening to this that will, uh, will, will want to follow in those footsteps uh, to become COOs. I wanted to move the conversation a bit to, to kind of, I guess, a slightly different topic, but you've been very vocal about the fact that you, you gave up alcohol uh, a little while back and, and we've seen burnout, mental health challenges, alcohol addiction become commonplace in business, you know, amongst leaders and founders because of the stress and pressure involved. So you, you talk, you've talked very openly about becoming alcohol dependent, the impact that the quitting booze has had on your life. So can you tell our listeners a bit about, you know, how you got to that point with alcohol and how it was affecting your life? Yeah, I mean, God, how is probably a question that everyone can answer. <laughs> you know, we, we, we all live that life. We all live a life of weekends and drinking. And I think if you don't understand how you get addicted to alcohol, you probably might be on that track yourself, which is quite a, a scary thing for people to consider. So with it, you know, like most people, spent my life, highs and lows, you know, commiserating and celebrating. That's what alcohol is, you know. It, both of those occasions depend on drink. So you can imagine, you know, starting a business, you have tons of those. You tons of, have tons of those highs, tons of those lows. So you've got to manage yourself. And what I didn't do very well was manage my emotions. And in those situations, I celebrated the highs and I commiserated the lows. And that isn't sustainable because the lows get lower, the highs get higher. So you find yourself becoming this kind of individual who is drinking Every, t- every day, every day. And surprisingly, you know, what many people don't know is alcohol is a drug and it's also an addictive drug. So when you're celebrating and commiserating and then it just becomes Wednesday and you're like, oh, I don't feel very good. What are you going to do? You're conditioned in a situation to have a drink. So you drink. So for me, that was like one of the things where I was learning so much about myself, so much about the world and I was just hiding through drinking. So for me, you know, it, it was really easy to get addicted. It was something which didn't take very long. And I think we had to realize that I had a problem with it. Yeah. And it, I, I, sadly, I think it's, it's probably any, everyone listening to this will know somebody that's in that situation or is maybe on, a, on the same sort of path. What were some of the steps you took to, to change this aspect of your life? And what advice do you have for any other founders or people in high stress jobs who might be becoming too dependent on alcohol? So this is the hard part. The hard part is accepting you're the problem. So for me... I was just 22, 23 years old and 
had was blaming everything else. Work, friends, relationships, everything. But the problem wasn't that, it was me. I was the problem. And that's the thing a lot of people can't do, is accept they're the problem. That deep, serious internal look that I need to change. It's the reason people get their whole lives and become stubborn and never do anything because they haven't had that conversation with themselves. So that's the first piece. Once you've done that, then you've got to understand the, the reason for the relationship. So as I mentioned there, you know, I can speak quite pragmatic at the fact that alcohol for me was a, a medication tool and a, a mood stabilizer slash enabler. So like my cognitive reaction was good day, bad day drink. So when you, every day is good or bad, you end up drinking. So I had to break that cycle and change my response. So if I had a good day, I had to do something different. If I had a bad day, I had to do something. It just couldn't be alcohol. So if I had a really good day at work, I'd treat myself by having a massage. And be like, oh, I've done really well today. I'm really happy. That's such success. There's a massage. There's a treat. Or I'd go on holiday. I'd book a last minute flight. Like, well done. That week was amazing. Go on holiday. If I had a bad day, I'd have to do something to manage my emotions. So for example, bad day, I'd go and get McDonald's. And that then slowly breaks the cycle between emotions and drinking. Brilliant. It's so, I mean, I'm so impressed. I, I know it's, it's something that like that a lot of us do, do, I mean, maybe not as extreme, but at the same time, we're all guilty. A lot of us are guilty of, of, of doing exactly that. And then before you know it, you can slip into some really bad habits. So it takes a lot to, to break them, as you said, and I'm sure there'll be people listening to this that will maybe recognize that in themselves and actually use that, that to maybe start making some positive changes. You need, you need the recognition in yourself. Yeah. And it's so difficult to admit you're an alcoholic. So difficult to admit you're drinking too much because you compare it to everyone around you. Like, oh, well, I'm not drinking that much compared to so-and-so, that much so-and-so. It's not, it's not a competition between left and right. It's a competition in itself. If it's making you feel bad and ruining your life, you are drinking too much. Yeah, totally. And, and how has it been for you since you've been alcohol-free? How has that impacted your life? And oh, business? I mean, like, it's, the, it's the best thing that's have happened to me. If, if I would say to someone, there's a methodology of having more energy, having more time, feeling better about yourself mentally and physically. And all this actually saves you money. You wouldn't yeah. believe me, would you? <laughs> win, 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 win. Yeah, no, it's so true. Win, 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 win. You would not believe me, would you? Yeah, it's so right. It's so right. Well, I feel like there's a there's a bit of a movement towards it. I mean, my fridge is now stocked with alcohol-free beer, and, uh, and and I feel like there's a lot more people I'm meeting that are are giving up booze or, or are having a more healthier relationship with it. So thank you for sharing that because I think the more high-profile leaders and founders that we speak to that, that talk about it, you know, the hopefully the better things will be and the less people will lose to addiction. So thank you, Dom. I really want to talk about, you know, after after you scaled the social chain and I know you got to a point where you ultimately exited the business, which is incredible and something that not many of us get to do. I wanted to come back to that because and just hear your reflection on that experience of taking something to IPO. What was that experience like and, and what advice would you have for any fellow founders that are kind of on that path about to, or thinking about going down that route? Yeah, good question. So I, I would kind of always say and start with like, understand what you want personally as much as what the company needs because you are as an individual responsible for yourself. So you can then base off the back of that where you want to go. And then I'd say secondly, be ready for it. You know, you as the entrepreneur of the business, you know what you want. You can set, you set the agenda, you set the framework of where you want to go. And I believe that in that route, anything's possible, be it uh, an exit for a trade sale, an IPO, a private equity deal. 
doing that and having the control of you as an entrepreneur, do it. Go for it. And I think it's one of those things you clearly had that success, but you've thrown yourself into the, you know, you've gone straight back into it. You recently announced a new venture as founding partner of Fearless Adventures, a multi-million pound fund supporting UK DC startups. So tell our listeners a bit more about your new business and how it came about. Yeah, exactly. So as I kind of talked about then, you know, I've raised money of social chain, but we never raised smart money. We always raised, you know, money, which was just money. And that led me a lot of the reasons to make decisions that were wrong and make mistakes, which led to my drinking and my personal downfall. And that's kind of the point where I realized, you know, now people talk about capital being readily available. And it's true, you know, if you've got a good idea, you can raise money for it. But what is limiting is, is support for, for founders. Um, so myself and two of the entrepreneurs got together to raise money from six other entrepreneurs. So there's a total of nine entrepreneurs on the table who are investing into entrepreneurs who are scaling their business. And the second part of that is the support. What does the support look like? Obviously, you've got mentorship from entrepreneurs, but then you actually hard services, marketing, recruitment, finance, logistics. All these businesses in that space are having similar problems. How can we help them with those problems and help them from a centralized team tap into resources that they couldn't be able to get and then therefore help them grow. So that's where it's come from. Yeah, as you mentioned, I went straight back into it because I was 27 leaving social. I've got a long life ahead of me. I need something to do. This is a business which I feel is going to be around for a very long time. I see it as a platform to support entrepreneurs. We're going to raise an even bigger fund next year and then probably an even bigger fund after that. So that's the plan. Yeah, exciting times ahead. I'm really looking forward to seeing how the, how the journey progresses. For any founders listening to this, what does the... The landscape currently look like for DTC startup founders looking for investment. And is there anything specific that you're looking for when you're talking to them? Because I'm sure there'll be eager listeners to this wanting to impress. I think the landscape in the moment for funding is a bit of a strange one. You know, it's there's a lot of people are going to the platforms like Seed and Crowdcube because it's easy capital. A couple of people have got one or two high net worths funding them. But there's nothing really where, unlike venture for tech, where there's institutes set up to be able to like, okay, we specifically look at these businesses. So I think we're filling a bit of a funding gap because we're looking at businesses which are scaling, which are growing, who have maybe tried stock financing, which would maybe try a bit of debt, but like an equity investment and having people around the table, it definitely creates different opportunities. You know, for example, like Gymshark, Gymshark was self-funded for a very long time, which is a fantastic achievement. I think, you know, in DTT space, you can be self-funded, but our kind of conversation to founders is, do we think we can get you there two years quicker if we take on investment now? Yeah, yeah, awesome. And and I just wanted to ask, you know, doing this the second time around, like how is it different? Obviously, it's a different type of business and different challenge, but how are you finding the, the, the experience? Now you're more experienced yourself and are there new learnings that you're gaining all the time that uh, perhaps surprised you? I think if you've done it before, it's like playing a game that you've played before. The rules are the same. You've been there and done it. You know, this, you know the issues, you know the downfalls. So it makes it a lot easier. And again, obviously, we're, we're looking from a, a business here where we're talking about investing and helping people scale. I think if, you, if you've not had proof in that market, it's going to be very difficult. So the fact we've got nine entrepreneurs on the table is a big thing. The fact that we're investing in companies and helping them grow is a big thing. So it, it just makes it a lot more easier, to be honest. 
I have no doubt it will be very successful, Don. And I think the, the final thing before we get on to our wrap-up questions, I know you are, I don't know how you juggle all the plates you do, but I know that you also recently started working with the Cabinet Office on its digital communication plan. So, so can you tell our listeners just a bit about that role and what your kind of motivation was for getting involved in something linked to government? Yeah, great question. So obviously last 18 months, two years now, we've government have been even more central than ever. And for me, leaving social chain last year, it was a case of, well, what do I want to do? You know, what do, what do I want to do? And I had friends in number 10 and they asked me if I wanted to be in conversation. So I spoke to them. I set out what they were trying to achieve. And I was like, okay, that's a good idea. I'll support and see what I can do. So yeah, it came out with a bit of a passion, a bit of a kind of help. You know, can I, can I bring some value to government? Which hopefully I've, I've managed to do. And it was just a different way to look at the world, uh, which has made me understand a lot more about why things are the way they are. Interesting. I think it, it feels like business, like politics can learn a lot from business and vice versa, I guess. Would you encourage other founders and entrepreneurs to, to get involved with these sorts of initiatives? 100%. I think it's very vital that the, the two worlds speak. Awesome. Good stuff. Well, Dom, I could speak to you for hours, but we're at our wrap up three final questions. It would be remiss of me not to talk about mentorship, given this is the 40 Minute Mentor. So do you have a mentor? And if so, how have they impacted your career? And if there was one person in the world that you could be mentored by, who would it be? Do they have to be alive or dead? You're cool. So my dream, my dream mentor, seriously speaking fictionally, has always been Napoleon. I think he is an individual who obviously did a lot and I'm completely transfixed with the way he operates. His execution, his vision, his leadership. I don't believe there's anyone better. I'd love for people to try and convince me. So him, yeah, it's just, just honestly, different level. Do I have a mentor? I see everyone I meet as a mentor because I think I can learn something from everyone. So I think that kind of really helps the way you think, you know, people, everyone you know is better at something. So if you see every single person as a mentor, you're always going to learn from everyone. Love that. And as a fellow historian, I know you recently embarked on that. You, you did a history degree at, at Oxford and I, uh, I did the same. And uh, I, I love the fact you you gave us a historical uh, figure as your dream mentor. That is awesome. That is awesome. And anyone else than that? Or no, no, I Oxford? don't think so. No, I mean, we've had Nelson Mandela as one. A lot of being like current, we've had Rihanna. We've had all sorts on to this question. So no one else has, uh, has, has given the podium. So uh, thank you for yeah freshening that up. And maybe that will inspire some other guests to go uh, go historical. Given all the success you've had already, and, you, and you've barely even got started, given our, our careers are you know lasting many, many years now, what do you want to be remembered for You know when you, when you get to that point where you decide to put the laptop down and sail up into the sun? I don't think anyone's external opinion will be able to change what I want to remember for. What I love is just, is just someone, you know, my wife, my, my kids, just to say thank you. One person. Just one person. All I need is a difference in one person's life. And that'll be good for me. Love it. And I'm sure there's going to be a lot more people that will say thank you. But I really do. And before we finish, Tom, for any aspiring entrepreneurs listening, uh, maybe they'll be creating their next social chain. What final piece of advice would you leave them with? I think the, the biggest piece is learn more about yourself. The quicker, quicker you can learn more about yourself, that you'll be. That's where I'd go to. Ask yourself the very difficult questions which you are avoiding. Ah, uh, that's a very good one. I think we're all, we're all guilty of that. So, uh, yeah, thank you very much, Tom. It's been um, a real pleasure having you on the 40 Minute Mentor. I'm really excited to see 
what the next few years bring for you. And um, yeah, I'm sure our listeners will be super inspired by your story. So thank you for sharing it. Fantastic. And that's a wrap for Series 6 of 40 Minute Mentor. I cannot thank enough all of our brilliant guests for their involvement in this series and for making our conversation so inspiring and insightful. A big thank you also to our sponsors, Chipper Cash, and to each and every one of you for listening to our podcast. We wouldn't be here without all of your support. We really, really appreciate it. We also love hearing your feedback after each episode, so please do keep submitting reviews on Apple Podcasts. And if there are any guests you'd like us to feature on Series 7, please feel free to drop me a line with any suggestions at info at jbmc.co.uk. So thanks again for all of your incredible support. And I hope you and your loved ones have a wonderful time over the festive period. See you soon for Series 7.